Thank you, Bob. I am uh, humbled to be here. It's an honor to be among so many people who have already given generously and are thinking about giving exponentially. And um, I have to tell you, though, before I start, I feel kind of like the drunk at a temperance revival. I'm kind of the before picture because uh, I'm struggling with this idea of exponential giving isn't even as I stand here. Uh, but I can tell you I am grateful. I'm grateful for two things, especially today. One, that I am one of the thousands of people that consider Todd Harper to be my best friend. And secondly, that I am not following Bob Goff, uh, but I am before him. You will understand that in a minute when you meet Bob. I will say, though, I'm a Socratic teacher by nature, which means I, I can only ask questions. Um, so I'm not very comfortable up here standing and speaking. Uh, this can get rather annoying at times. Uh, like when I come home after class and Laura turns to me and said, how was class today? And I respond, how do you think it was? <laughs> As I was driving over here, I thought about my own journey and struggles with generous giving. And the very first generous giving conference or, or meeting I attended with three or four young, very wealthy entrepreneurs in West Texas and Todd. And about the question that the entire weekend revolved around. It was this question. Does God want me to have an airplane? Now, I'm a pilot, so that somewhat appealed to me, too, but I thought I was kind of above that question because I was older than the group assembled. But I really think that, in a way, that's the question I want to talk about today. Does God want me to have an airplane? Or, or maybe said a different way, what's your airplane? And I'll say that as we talk about this, we'll come back to that question in a minute, but as talk this, at our school, Acton, uh, we make three promises to our students. That they will learn how to learn, they'll learn how to ask questions instead of be the most, trying to be the most uh, intelligent person in the room. They will learn how to make money, we're rather crass about that as we CEOs and entrepreneurs lead discussions. And that they will learn how to live a life of meaning. So this question about generosity and lives of meaning, something I spent a lot of time writing and thinking about. But my confession to you is that I've determined that I'm a fool about that question. So we'll come back to that in a minute later. But if you stick with me, I promise you in the next few minutes, we'll explore this idea of generous giving and giving exponentially. This question of, does God want me to have an airplane? Or more importantly, what is your airplane? What is my airplane? And how I've been such a fool. But more on that in a minute too. I'd like to explore this, though, with three takeaways or three questions we used at the school that I hope you'll find useful. Question one, are you a hoarder or a spender? Now, I was raised by an uncle and a grandfather who were products of the Great Depression. My uncle once said that when he was growing up that money was so scarce that nickels looked like manhole covers. My uncle and grandfather were hoarders. My father, however, was a wildcatter. We were rich one year, we were broke the next, but we always lived if, if we were rich. I remember coming back from business school when oil prices were down and dad was broke and I said, dad, you're gonna have to sell your airplane. And his response was, well, son, I, I may, but they better have a runway at the poorhouse because I'll be dadgummed if I'm gonna drive there. So like most sons, I rebelled against my father. In a way, I probably still am. So when I look at someone who enjoys spending money, 
I want to shake my finger. It's because I'm a hoarder. And if you just, when I talked about spending in airplanes, you kind of winced, you're probably a hoarder with me. Um, if you're a spender, you may have felt attacked and you looked at me and said, yeah, you're probably pretty stingy. And that would be true too. So I ask you this question because as we work with students all the time, we ask them to go back to their family history. We find that somewhere, somehow, we all got a message about money and what it meant. And it either was money is scarce and to be safe, you must hoard it, or the way to find fulfillment is to spend. And so I would challenge you when you go home tonight to ask, and most of you say, well, I'm neither. Actually, I've never found that to be true. Most of us are one or the other. And of course, what we all know is you can't spend to find fulfillment and you can't hoard your way to safety. Both of those are in God's hands. My second question, what is your number? We have an exercise for our students. We ask them to calculate how much money they would need to win in the lottery. Given their spending habits and investing that money, in, how much would you have to win in the lottery to never care about money again? My friend Frank Hanna writes in a book called uh, What's Your Money Means that this is one of the most important questions for us spiritually, not even religiously, but spiritually, to think about what that number is, and we each have to do it ourselves, and then to consider that everything that's left over, we should mentally pile in a room and consider burning it. Because if we're not careful with our stewardship, we're likely to do more harm than good. But it's just this important exercise of going through and figuring out a number is a critical one, not about your number, but exactly your number and to write it down. Um, I will tell you, it's interesting with our MBAs, the number is almost always $10 million. Can't tell you why, it's always very close to $10 million. I'm embarrassed to admit to you that my number's about $30 million. Now, I came out of business school, I founded a company, and I was so lucky at a very young age to make a lot of money, a lot more money than that. And I've made a lot more money since then, so I kind of feel good as a hoarder that my number is such a small percentage of my net worth. But I would hold to you that that's, um, whatever that number is, it's a sign of our spiritual health and that 10 million has to be way too high and certainly 30 million has to be way too high and I'm actually kidding myself. So I would challenge you when you leave here to write down that number. I remember going a few years ago to see Bernie Marcus, who's the founder of Home Depot. And Bernie wanted to build hundreds of Actons and he, we were talking about it and I was explaining why it was so hard. And at the end of the day, Bernie sat down and he said, son, do you mind if an old man gives you some advice? I said, no, sir, I'd love, love to have some advice. And he said, I'm 74 years old. I'm worth $2.5 billion. And last year, I personally built an aquarium for the city of Atlanta and spent $250 million. I built it myself, and I gave it to the city because I knew they would mess it up, so I built it and gave it to them. And by the way, if you haven't been there, it's a fabulous aquarium. But Bernie looked at me, and he said, but I had more money at the end of the year than when I started. And every night I go to bed and I worry, if I die tonight, someone might actually use that money in a way that will harm someone. And then the next words he said stuck with me. He said, son, every dollar you make from now on is going to be a burden to you and not a blessing. And so on the plane that night, flying home, I decided I was going to sell everything I had and promise to give it away in my lifetime. 
And I did that. Sold everything. Now, remember, I'm still trying to hoard this one piece back, but I promised to give away the rest. So I ask you in the spirit of Frank Hanna and Bernie Marcus, when you go home tonight, to think about what your number is. And in fact, having more money may in fact not be a blessing, but in some ways a curse. Question three, takeaway three. Probably the hardest of all, why are you here? Now we do something interesting at acting. We actually ask our students to go out and interview 10 stars and stepping stones interviews or conduct 10 stars and stepping stones interviews. And what we say is go out and find a role model, someone you want to become like. And I encourage you to do this, it's a great exercise. Find at least three people between your age and 40, if you're younger than 40, three between 40 and 60, and three over the age of 60. Ask them about their regrets, about the joy in life, about what they've done. Find out about who they are and what's mattered to them. And then ask yourself if they're really a role model. Now, here's what's interesting. Almost always, when the students come back, they'll tell us that the people over 60 say the same thing. It's people that are role models that you want to be like. They say, when you get to my age, you'll look back and you'll ask yourself, did I accomplish something meaningful? Was I a good person? And who did I love and who loved me? And so I would ask you, encourage you to go out and do some of these interviews with role models and ask those three questions, which I think are so important. I think they are the key in many ways to earthly wisdom. Three questions. Am I a hoarder or a spender? What is my number? And why am I here? Wise questions from a lifetime of asking and guiding young entrepreneurs. And I'll say to you, if you're searching or want to guide young entrepreneurs yourself, we'd love to do that at Acton. We'd love to have your help um, in doing that. But here's what I must warn you. All of the things we've written and published and all the materials, in the end, are the writings of a fool. And to explain this, it requires one more story. It was three years ago, my 50th birthday party. And I told my wife I didn't want a big party. I was kind of done with that. She tried and tried, and I kept saying no. And so I wanted to have a quiet family birthday. And she was kind enough and loving enough that she went out without me knowing it, went out and asked a large number of my close friends to write a letter about our lives together. And so I went and I sat by this beautiful stream in Colorado and I opened up this beautiful book she'd created with all the letters in it. And in one sitting, read letter after letter after letter. My heart was touched by the generosity of friends, those I loved and who loved me. But I started to notice a pattern. In every single letter, there was a mention of something small that I had done that meant so much to them. And it reminded me of my mentor, Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley, and how I noticed when he died, people didn't write about the books he'd written. Uh, People didn't talk about uh, all the columns he'd written. If you read the columns after he had died, everyone started the first paragraph with how much he cared about me and the thing he did when I didn't matter. I was a little person and Bill Buckley came and picked me up at the airport. And that resonated with me so much because I was always 
the least powerful person in the room. I was always the most scared, and I was almost always, always the one Bill Buckley came to first. And those warm feelings, it was always these small things that I'd done for people. And here's the important part. As I continued to read, I became horrified because I realized I didn't remember any of them. Almost without exception, not a single one of the things I had done for someone mattered. But here's what really horrified me. How many times did I walk by somebody and not notice that they were in need? How many interns did I not stop and say, how are you today? How many friends did I not ask about how things were at home? Because I was too busy worrying about wisdom and living my life and uh, doing things that were meaningful and being a good person. I didn't stop. Does God want me to have an airplane? My guess is that question both uh, makes him laugh and makes him sad. Should we give not only generously but exponentially? Of course we should. And we should give as wisely as we had as good stewards. But I think we need to be very careful. I need to be very careful not to confuse philanthropy with charity. Philanthropy, you see, at least is the way the modern secular society has perverted it, is the systematic perfection of mankind. How do we give money to make people better, to make the earth a better place? Certainly good to try to do that. But I would hold in the end, it's a fool's errand because we're not going to perfect society. And that generous giving, even with good spirit, with good stewardship, we will fail at that task. Charity is something entirely different. It's an individual act of love, sometimes tough love, sometimes as we saw in a prison. Almost always with a touch of grace, always person to person, and by definition, not scalable with large amounts of money. Let me close with this. First, the words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, 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 says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and his commandments. And from Matthew, quote, Jesus replied, Love your God, your Lord, with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. God bless you.